Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Sunday, June 25th, and this is a special edition of the FT News Briefing. The briefing recently wrapped up a series on the U.S. and U.K. housing markets. Home prices in those countries skyrocketed during the pandemic. We looked at how they got so out of whack and what might work to bring back some balance. In case you missed any of the segments when they were originally released, we've put all four of them in this episode. For part one, FT News Briefing producer Sonia Hudson traveled to Asheville in the U.S. state of North Carolina. This growing city exemplifies a lot of what's going on in the broader market. Here's the story. Hi, Sonia. Hi, Mark. So tell me a little bit about Asheville and why you went there for this story. Yeah, so Asheville is a small city in the mountains in North Carolina. There's just under 100,000 people that live there. It is absolutely gorgeous. You know, it's great for hiking, mountain biking, camping. And in fact, it has such a nice standard of living that lots of people have been moving there, especially during the pandemic. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. A lot of people were working from home during the pandemic. They want their life to be better. Yeah, you know, lots of people around the country made lifestyle changes during that time. So I met up with a young couple in Asheville. They're locals. They grew up in the area. Their names are Caitlin and Drew Friedman, who spent nearly a year looking for their starter home. A year? Nearly a year? That's insane. Yeah, it was quite a journey for them. Uh, And so I wanted to know a little bit more about what that process was like for them. Removing the heaviest couch of them all. <laughs> it's a heavy one. There's just a lot of metal. It's move-in day on Newberry Drive. Drew and Caitlin Friedman are unloading their red pickup truck in the driveway of their new home. If you look down the street, you can see a piece of the Appalachian Mountains. Gorgeous rolling hills blanketed in bright green trees. It feels like quintessential spring like new beginnings. It feels really good. Um, We've been basically sitting on the floor the past few days, so it feels very surreal, actually, now that our living room is set up in our living room. (laughs) Caitlin and Drew spent nine months getting to this point where they could relax on their couch in their home. They started looking for a place last summer, but there wasn't much on the market. The couple only found about eight to 10 houses that they liked and that were in their budget of under $400,000. I personally wasn't finding a lot of options in our price range. Like we could go, you know, 50 to $100,000 over our price range and I was finding all sorts of great things. Um, But in our price range, um, it was either just outdated, too much work to be done, or it was just straight up ugly. And I just didn't really want to live in it, you know? It's discouraging. You know, I'm one of those people, I want what I want. So anytime I don't get what I want, I kind of just say, well, you know, whatever then, you know, we'll just, you know, live in an apartment forever (laughs) kind of thing. Their real estate agent knew they were going to have a tough time. Nick Iannucci, who also happens to be Caitlin's brother-in-law, says that at the beginning, he deliberately showed them a bunch of houses he didn't think would work. But I wanted them to look. I wanted them to see. I also wanted them to see how fast they would go off the market. To figure out why there are so few houses on the market, I talked to Nick's boss, Neil Hanks. He's been doing real estate in this market for more than three decades. For 
probably over 15 years now, we've had a shortage of new homes being built. And, um, and so that's a big deficit to try to make up. If you look at a chart of new single-family homes being built nationally, it pretty much falls off a cliff right before the 2008 housing crisis and recession. Home prices cratered, and the cost of materials and labor went up. So building a new house wasn't as lucrative as it was before, which is one reason why there are so few homes for sale right now. And the second challenge that, that we're facing right now is, is what we call in the industry is uh, interest rate lock. And so if you're thinking about uh, making a move and you're in a home with a interest rate under four and you realize that your replacement property, if you're going to mortgage that property, is going to have an interest rate over six, gives some folks cause for pause or may delay a move that they were uh, anticipating making just to see if rates will moderate. So people are holding on to their homes, and buyers are fighting over the few homes that are available. Which brings us back to Drew and Caitlin. We had a split-level house um, that we were totally going to do, and that was on the market in a day and gone. Um, There was, we were waiting behind cars that were viewing that house, and then there was cars waiting behind us on for their appointments all on the same day. I mean, it was, went so fast. Asheville is also a really tight market because, as Neil doesn't need to remind me, it is such a great place to live. And people have moved here for those reasons. Uh, But the pandemic really accelerated that trend. And, uh, you know, people are moving here at much earlier ages than what we have seen in the past uh, when we were known a little bit as a retirement community. So all in all, it was just a really discouraging process for Caitlin and Drew until they finally found this house on Newbury Drive in their price range. I told Drew that this was the first house that I walked into that I could actually see our future in. When they toured the house, it had only been on the market for a day. They had two hours to submit an offer before the deadline. Drew says he really wanted to get the offer right. You know, I'm in my head going, okay, so someone else is going to offer them 5000 over. Okay, so let's do 10 And then I said, well, someone's going to do 10 And then I was like, let's do 11 And I said, no, someone's going to think 10 to 11 And then I said, eleven <laughs> five. I said, that's the number. That is the number. Um, and that's what we did. And we got it. So Caitlin and Drew finally got what they wanted. But a lack of inventory means other buyers might still have to wait a long time to find a home. And when they do, they've got to be ready to pull the trigger and write a check immediately. As Caitlin put it, It took a long time for it to happen suddenly. For the FT News Briefing, I'm Sonia Hudson. All right, let's go across the Atlantic to the UK. Homes there have become so unaffordable, people are looking for workarounds. One solution is called home sharing. FT audio producer Persis Love met two unlikely roommates doing this program, so I called her up to chat about it. Hi, Persis. Hey. Okay, so home sharing is actually kind of a new phrase for me. I'm just hearing about it recently. What exactly is it? So home sharing is basically just two people living together, but one of them tends to be a homeowner and they open up a spare room they have to somebody who's looking for a place to stay. And in exchange, that person does about 10 to 15 hours a week of household chores. 
So it's something that's been around for a while, but because housing costs and particularly rental costs have been increasing so much in recent months, home sharing organizations have said they've seen a massive uptick in interest. That makes sense. I could see the appeal of that. What's the difference between home sharing and just roommates, you know, two people sharing an apartment or just someone living alone? I mean, one of the key differences is the price of it and the way that that cost structure is set up. The other difference is the household chores and also the relationship that will exist between the two. So a few weeks ago, I went to visit a home sharing pair, a woman named Bearball, who has been living in her home in North London since 2006. And then for the past year, she's been sharing her house with Isaac, who is 25. So there's this intergenerational pair, they're living together, and I produced this piece, which hopefully will give you a sense of what their home sharing setup is like. The day I visited, Isaac was showing Bearball some music that he was working on on the piano. Bearball was sat on the sofa, she had her hands in her lap, and she was enraptured listening to him play. Bebel actually used to be a piano teacher and Isaac had just graduated from a music degree when he moved in, which was about a year ago. And I was not earning a whole lot at the time and I was looking to change career path and actually go into something that would require me to have my degree. So renting a room in London can easily cost £1,000 a month and Isaac didn't want to spend that much. He made some calls to a citizen's advice service and they told him about home sharing. I needed something that was going to take the financial pressure off, at least for the short term. And I mean, a lot of my friends said, oh, what? I would never do that. (laughs) But Bebel didn't want to live alone anymore. Her husband had moved into a care home for people with dementia and she was at a support group for people affected by dementia, which is where she found out about home sharing. One day I thought, I've got room, so why not give it a go? So Bearball actually doesn't make any money out of this. She pays £99 a month to the home-sharing organisation that helped match her with Isaac. And in return, he does 10 hours a week of household chores. Empty dishwasher, refill, sweep and clean patio. And Isaac, he pays the home-sharing organisation £170 a month, which is a lot less than he would pay to rent a room in London. And what he saves on rent, he's putting away every month to try and buy a house one day. The time it would take for me to get a deposit together, it would take three times as long. I find the fact that Isaac is in the house at night very reassuring because um, anything can happen. Actually, most of the homeowners who do home share are elderly people like Bearball. And it's not always smooth sailing. You have to be a bit, what would you say? Open. Open. And uh, open also that there could be difficulties. Isaac is very good at not getting offended. Mm. And that's very good. That's where he really scores. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't feel... With him, I have to be particularly diplomatic. You know, I'm German, so we don't <laughs> like beating around the bush. <laughs> but it's also, I mean, for you, it's not 100% secure because you never know what will happen to me. I mean, I'm, no, no, that's I'm right. 78 and got health issues, so 
No, no, that's right. But I think having the experience of doing home share in the first place kind of makes it... You could do it again. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 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 Persis, that was lovely. And it seems like they really get along. But I wonder, does home sharing work for everyone? And what happens if people don't get along? So I think people not getting along is actually quite common. And I know that home sharing has quite a high turnover. I think that's partly to do with the householder often being someone who is elderly and often their care needs reach a point that they need a more kind of constant live-in care. But that is to do as well with like the dynamic between the two people. Um, And actually, interestingly, lots of the home sharers that I spoke to, part of the appeal for them was the dynamic or was kind of wanting to find an inroad to a living situation that wasn't just like anonymous people paying for rooms and kind of not sharing any quality of life, but for people who are looking for a real route into a community and living with someone who maybe has been embedded in that community for much longer was their way of doing that. And what also struck me about your piece, Persis, is that the only one who's making any money out of this is the home sharing organization. Bearable pays a monthly fee. Isaac pays his rent to the organization. Why is it structured this way? The home sharing organizations that I spoke to say that the fees that they get from the householder and from the home sharer is what enables them to to run, to cover their costs, essentially. Another argument they put forward for it is that, you know, if you have an elderly homeowner, actually paying a fee like £100 a month to have someone who's in your house all the time or who's carrying out these household tasks is quite a small cost compared to what you would pay for more privatized, low-level social care. Persis, thanks so much for this piece. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on, Mark. That's FT Audio producer Persis Love. A lack of supply is a big reason behind the increases in home prices both in the UK and the US. There's a creative solution that's building steam in cities across America. One of those cities is Baltimore in the state of Maryland. I went there to meet a couple of guys who are converting abandoned office buildings into apartments. The Fidelity Building in downtown Baltimore is nearly 130 years old. And I gotta say, it's charming as hell. It has beautiful features like a giant clock in the lobby and a marble staircase. But for more than two decades, it's been empty. This was the kind of main entry lobby for the office building of its time with an elevator bank of six total elevators. This was a high traffic area with hundreds of office workers coming in and out of every day. Patrick Lundberg is a local architect. He's showing me around this historic building. He leads me through a pitch black room and then... Oh, wow, look at that vault. It's amazing. It's a 10-foot high, shiny copper bank vault. It is the Fidelity Building, after all, an early home to the famous asset manager. Is it weird that I'm kind of scared to go in there and get accidentally locked, <laughs> like, locked in? <laughs> Patrick's turning this 15-story office building into residential apartments. For Patrick, this kind of work isn't just about a building, though. It's about improving Baltimore, too. He moved here right out of college and fell in love with a city that's kind of in Washington, D.C. shadow. I mean, the nation's capital is less than an hour away. But Baltimore has its own charm. In fact, its nickname is Charm City. You know, I got to live in a city at a young age that was affordable and could offer 
all the things that a young person would want out of a city. Great, you know, recreation, entertainment, nightlife, and just kind of a really interesting and unique mix of people. But the city's downtown business district has emptied out over the past two decades. High crime and a lack of investment will do that to a place. The pandemic and work-from-home culture made it even worse. Now, the city is trying to revive downtown, and Patrick wants to be a part of that. This project is going to add, you know, hundreds of new units and hundreds of new residents to the area, as well as other work that's happening in the vicinity. So, you know, story being is that this project is part of kind of a a redevelopment and reactivation of this entire district. Patrick's working with a local developer who's similarly attached to Baltimore and also named Patrick. Patrick Grace is part owner of the Fidelity Building, The building sold last year for $6 million, and he says it's going to take another $54 million to renovate. And it's not the only office-to-housing conversion he's doing. So he has been busy. Swamped, swamped. I mean, I just hired people. And we manage the buildings on the back end, too. So, and it's like five conference calls a week. And converting old office buildings into apartments isn't just logistically tricky. It's architecturally challenging as well. No matter how well you plan or tour the building or inspect the building, there's a lot of, during construction, a lot of unforeseen building conditions that you run into that cost money and are a headache, and it takes a lot of time. A lot of people just don't want to take it on. Another thing that's really unique about this floor that's going to be a pain in the butt is because we are above the bank vault space here, you have all these units for 15 floors that are sitting on top of that bank vault space. Remember that beautiful copper bank vault They really can't mess with that because this historic architectural feature is tied to a tax credit. So they have to figure out a way for things like pipes to bend around it. Now, if all goes according to plan, the building will open to residents sometime next year. And it will provide more than 200 new units. So, can these types of conversions really solve the local housing crisis? And I don't think this one is a silver bullet, but I think it's still something that can help. That's Jake Day. He runs the state of Maryland's Department of Housing and Community Development. And he says the crisis is not just in Baltimore. Maryland needs around 120,000 more units of housing, according to the National Association of Realtors. And I don't want to leave any stone unturned because when you're in a crisis, I think you got to claw your way out. In addition to taking pressure off the housing crisis, these office conversions can also help revive downtown. Because Day is really worried about what happens if these empty buildings stay empty. The consequences are significant and are going to be boarded up retail. They're going to be dead street life. They're going to be an effect on what it feels like for a visitor to come. So he needs people like Patrick Lundberg and Patrick Grace to build housing And they're excited about being part of this larger renaissance in downtown Baltimore. It's very simple. I have a building that I can build and I can bring people in here and it can be a profitable business. You know, 10 years from now, you'll come down here and go like, oh my God, there's a bunch of restaurants and more buildings are open and things like that. That's the the goal, you know, but we can only do our part, I guess, to help that. Throughout this whole series, we've been talking about how expensive homes are right now, which doesn't make a ton of sense because we're in an era of rising interest rates. That theoretically should dampen demand and lower prices. 
But as the FT's U.S. economics editor, Colby Smith, told us, it's more complicated than that. So, Colby, this is this is weird, right? I mean, that prices are staying high even though borrowing costs are, are moving higher? Absolutely. I think that's what people would expect. But it goes back to the point you raised about supply. And that's a really, really big issue. You know, limited inventory is keeping these national home price declines relatively modest uh, for the most part. Redfin put out a, a recent study that said for a typical home, prices have only declined about 1.6% on a year-over-year basis. I mean, that's not a significant improvement in affordability whatsoever at a time when it is still quite expensive to use borrowed money to, to buy a new home. Is there anything the government can do to make homes more affordable? So, I mean, economists think about slowing down the economy a little bit more broadly. But one thing that you hear from policymakers and economists is that, you know, the government can help this process to a certain extent by not pumping additional stimulus into the economy. And the Biden administration has made it a point that any, you know, additional spending or infrastructure plans or whatnot are deficit neutral. But that being said, that also could mean any given American is less able to buy a home in the first place if the economy as a whole is slowing down, if let's say they're not getting the wage gains they need to see. You could also be confronting job losses in and of itself. Um, So it's all connected. So Colby, where do economists think the housing market is headed? Um, I think it depends on how much more the Fed is going to do here. If, you know, you think inflation is coming down and you think that um, it'll do so quite quickly, that basically suggests the most likely next move is a interest rate decrease rather than an increase. But if you think that inflation is more of a persistent problem, um, that there's too much momentum in the economy, the Fed does in fact need to do more, you know, you could well see mortgage rates rise, which is going to take a bigger bite out of the housing market and you could see more substantive um, price declines. It's a pretty unsatisfying answer, but I, I think it's just too soon to say. Colby Smith is the FT's U.S. economics editor. Thanks, Colby. Thank you. To take a look at where the market might be headed in the U.K., I turned to the FT's property correspondent, Joshua Oliver. I guess the the question I have for you is, the solution seems to be easy, right? Build more houses. Why isn't it that cut and dry? It would seem like it would be easy. And also, you know, if you're talking about a house building industry, you know, everybody wants this product. But of course, it's more complicated than that. The UK planning system is slow, it's under-resourced, and it's very, very kind of detailed and exacting in this country. So it takes a very long time to get from, we have some land, we'd like to build houses on it, to, okay, we can go ahead and put shovels in the ground. And that is to do with, you know, the red tape. But then you have other issues after that. You've got financing. The cost of debt has gone up a lot this year, so it's harder for, you know, developers to get financing. Most real estate development is debt-fueled. Then there's more projects where you say, at the end of the day, look, we just can't do it. What's the government doing to fix this issue? Anything? So the government has a housing target, Uh, We don't seem able to reach it, and we're getting further from reaching it very likely this year. The housing target was made advisory towards the end of last year, and so that gave local government in the UK more flexibility to 
not build the amount of houses that they would need to build in order for the national level housing target to be met. That reflects that in a lot of local areas, you have the famous NIMBY interest, not in my backyard, people who are very happy for houses to be built, but as long as it's not near them. And you know this is a big political constituency with a lot of clout, you have a conservative government, there's a lot of influence in the conservative party that was worried about too much building in particular areas. And so, you know, you had less pressure from central government down to local government saying the building targets need to be met. Yeah, Josh, can you tell me a little bit about the politics here? Yeah, the the housing politics in in the UK is getting very interesting right now, I think, with an election, you know, very much now in view. I think there's a perception that the Conservative Party has made itself vulnerable on the housing front. There's kind of an opportunity that's opened up for the Labour Party and the opposition to portray themselves as being the party of building, the party of home ownership. And I think we're the phase where you see a lot of different ideas getting floated. It's not totally clear what the policy is going to look like when, you know, when we get to an election. Um, but what we are seeing is that the Labour Party has definitely spotted the opportunity and are going to try and make the housing question an issue in the election. Joshua Oliver is the FT's property correspondent. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Mark. That was a special episode of the FT News Briefing. We'll be back tomorrow with the latest business news. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.